35 is where we pick up this evening, and Lord willing, we shall uh, see. I've had great expectations and failed them many times before, uh, but uh, I'd like to this evening maybe do Psalm 35 through 37, move a little more quickly through these initial ones and um, spend a little more time in Psalm 37. We'll uh, see how that unfolds as we walk our way forward, but let's pray, why don't we? Father, thank you for uh, just an opportunity to open uh, the Word of God together and Lord, is an act of worship uh, to kind of come before you and your word saying, speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. And Lord, we want to learn more about you. We want to hear your voice leading us and guiding us in our lives and speaking things to us that we need to hear and that would be helpful for us to know. So we ask by your spirit's ministry that you would speak to us through the word of God this night as we open it once again together. And we pray this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, Psalm 35 is where we continue on this evening, another Psalm of David. And uh, we'll see in Psalm 35, David here seems to be crying out to the Lord regarding some rather severe mistreatment that he was going through in his life. He was being falsely accused. He was being attacked in some different ways, and this happened on numerous occasions in David's life. It happened during the time when Saul's jealousy was raging against him. We know that. Uh, Also, David had his own fair share of occasions where he had some real family problems, where his son Absalom rebelled against him, did some really horrible and hurtful things to him, spoke a lot of things about his father that were not true to try and destroy his father's character and reputation in the eyes of other people and uh, to really take advantage of his father. And, you know, as we look at David expressing these things, he's just kind of pouring out his hurt to God and he's processing it by just praying and kind of venting, if you would, to God. And I think sometimes that's a a good and a healthy thing to do. In fact, sometimes it's better to just vent to God than it is probably maybe to vent to another person. God's got broad shoulders. He's a lot better at keeping confidentiality. Uh, He probably isn't going to judge us uh, to the same degree that others may. And and really, Psalm 35, it's kind of rather lengthy, and David's almost quite, as you'll see, pretty repetitious throughout it. But he's just, I think, just kind of letting some steam off like we all need to do sometimes. You got to let some steam off the pressure valve a little bit at a time, maybe when you're angry or you're hurting. And that's kind of what we see David doing here in this psalm and kind of helpful for us because from time to time we can relate to this. Maybe there's been an occasion when somebody has done hurtful things to you or spoken things about you that were hurtful or not true maybe accusations, or maybe you've been attacked by someone, maybe even, as I said, maybe even your own family have done something like that to you. And so maybe you can relate in some ways to David's experiences and David's words here. He starts out in Psalm 35 saying, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me, fight against those who fight against me. So David basically says, Lord, I need you to come to my defense here. There are those who are striving and fighting 
against me. And it's almost kind of like David uh, looking to his father to help him out or David looking to his older brother to deal with the bully in the schoolyard, you know, kind of, you know, come to my aid. I like how he says there, Lord, fight against those who fight against me. Lord, I can try and fight them myself. I can try and defend myself and prove my own innocence. And, you know, it's often been said many times before, if you and I want to defend ourselves, uh, God will gladly allow us to do that. But really a much better thing is just to let God defend us. And it's our job to maintain our character. And it is God's job to protect our reputation. And if we protect and maintain our character, then we can trust God will do a sufficient job maintaining our reputation and so david says lord i don't want to fight against them just would you fight against them for me go deal with them take hold of he says shield and buckler these pictures of warfare and stand up for my help i like that lord stand up for me i'm being bullied i'm being taken advantage of please stand up for my help and draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me and say to my soul, I am your salvation. In other words, God, deal with these things for me. Address these individuals. You stop them. And Lord, speak comfort to my soul saying, look, I'm your salvation. I'm going to deliver you. You just stand still and let me work. Verse four, he says, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. So, Lord, those who are trying to hurt me, uh, I pray that you would not only protect me, but that you would deal with them in severity to kind of bring upon them what they're, in a sense, trying to do to hurt and to harm me. He begins to make this continuous refrain now we'll see throughout the remainder of the psalm. Let them, let them. In other words, he's saying, Lord, let them experience the things that they deserve. That's basically his prayer. Lord, I'm not going to do to them what they deserve, but let them experience what they deserve. Lord, I pray that you would bring those things to pass. And that's always the challenge is a lot of times we want to vindicate ourselves. We want to bring our own attack or retaliation rather than just saying, Lord, how about you do that? You're just, you'll do it in a righteous way. Uh, Nobody's going to question you. They'll question me if I do it, but He says, verse five, Lord, you let them be like chaff before the wind. Remember, the chaff was the worthless uh, part of the crop. It was very light. It's what blew away in the wind. So he says, Lord, may they just be like the chaff that's blown away by the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery. Lord, don't let them gain any stability or ground in what they're doing. I pray you'd make their path slippery and that they would fall and that their way would be dark and they wouldn't be able to see the way forward. Again, he says, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them for without cause, they have hidden their net for me uh, in a pit. So it seems again, there was no cause. They were just hurtfully coming against David in this situation, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself into the very destruction, let him fall. So he's, in a sense, asking for poetic justice. Lord, they're trying to ensnare me. They're trying to trap me. And he says, God, I'm just praying, let them get caught in their own trap. The very trap that they're setting, he said, God, just let them end up getting caught and snared in their very own trap. 
of destruction that they're trying to bring upon me. May, uh, may, he says, unexpectedly, everything just fall through the cracks on them, and they end up being stopped in the cause in which they're pursuing. And he's asking that the Lord would do this by just orchestrating circumstances and bringing about, in a sense, judgment on his behalf to plead his cause and to vindicate him in the situation, to bring protection for him. He says, verse 9, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. And again, rather than be angry over what's happening, rather than be resentful and bitter over what's being done to hurt him, he says, you know what, instead, I'm not going to focus on the wrong things they're doing to me. I'm going to focus on everything that's right about you, God, and just keep a different perspective and just be joyful in the Lord and just rejoice in his salvation. And again, we've talked about that's something we can always rejoice in. Even if we can't in our circumstances, we can always rejoice in the Lord and in the wonderful salvation he's brought to us. And, you know, even as David here is working through this issue of betrayal and hurt in his life, you know, to some degree, I think we should be joyful in the Lord and rejoice in his deliverance and salvation because, you know, the very same things that people do hurtfully and wrong to us, if we were to be humble and honest with ourselves, Uh, Quite honestly, not only have we probably maybe from time to time done that to other people, but we've certainly done that to the Lord. We've all betrayed the Lord, right? We've all hurt the Lord and the things that we, I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe they said those hurtful things or did those hurtful things. Well, if you think about it, who's the person who's experienced more hurt and betrayal than anybody? It's the person of the Lord himself. It's God, right? I mean, his humanity of creation, everything, every person that he's created and given breath in our lungs and life to us, and and he he treats us so well, and yet we turn our backs against him, we rebel against him. You know, we spit in God's face and shake our fists at him, and many of us have spent times in our lives just completely living in ways that were hurtful to God and, and in a sense, saying things about God we should have never said, and, and we should be thankful he delivered us, right? He forgave us. He was willing to work in our life and still draw us into relationship with him despite how hurtful we had been towards him. And we should be grateful and rejoice in that. Sometimes that helps us have a little better attitude towards those who are hurting us to some degree. Verse 10, David goes on to say, and all my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? In other words, with every part within me, Lord, every one of my bones should just be amazed. There's no one like you delivering, he says, the poor, from him who's too strong from him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. So he pictures how God comes to the aid of those who are vulnerable, those who are weak, who who lack resource to be able to help themselves as he refers to the poor here. That's what he's describing. Those who don't have the resources to help themselves. Those who are vulnerable and able to be taken advantage of easily by others. Those who are in a needy condition or able to be manipulated. He says, Lord, you come to the defense of people in this kind of condition. And he says, Lord, how awesome are you? No one is like you. You intervene and deliver those who are facing attack from those who are too strong for them. And you step in for the weak and you help out the vulnerable, he says, the poor and the needy from those who are plundering them and taking advantage of them hurtfully. He says, verse 11, fierce witnesses rise up and they ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. Now, when you look at verse 11 and 12, 
certainly those were David experiences, but prophetically, I see the Holy Spirit speaking of even some of what happened to our Lord Jesus, right? Fierce witnesses rose up against Jesus, heaping insults and false accusations and blasphemies against Jesus. Uh, They rewarded Jesus with evil for good to the sorrow of his own soul. I mean, Jesus never did anything but good. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that he went about doing good. That was his life and ministry. I mean, you read the gospels, that's all Jesus did. He just went around helping and serving, whether it was teaching or doing miracles or, I mean, he went about doing good and and showing good, the love and good and kindness of God to people. And yet he was treated horribly and they rewarded him with evil for good in the way that ultimately they treated him. Verse 13, David says, but as for me, when they were sick, in other words, when they were in their time of suffering, my clothing was sackcloth, that is that of mourning, grieving. And I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or my brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. So he says, when they were in trouble, God, I I was grieved and saddened. I was in my heartbroken condition. I was pleading with you and praying for them and wanting to see you do what would be best for them. He says, I continued to pace around. I was so concerned. He said, I felt as concerned as if it was actually my own, you know, family member that was going through such a thing. But then the contrast, and this was what was so hurtful because David says, man, when they were in a hard time, not only was I not hassling them or making it worse for them, I was doing everything I could to help them pouring myself out in prayer and being concerned over them. But then the contrast, and this is why it was so hurtful, he says, verse 15, but in my adversity, when I'm going through a hard time, they rejoiced. They celebrated David's pain and hardship. And they gathered together, attackers, he calls them, gathered against me. And I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease with ungodly mockers at feasts. They gnashed at me with their teeth. So he says, they treated me in painful ways, the exact opposite, again, repaying him evil, though he had done so much good for them in their lives. He says again, verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? In other words, Lord, when are you gonna do something (laughs) about my situation, right? I think we all from time to time feel like that, especially when we're going through just a hardship generally. And maybe all the more when somebody's doing something that's hurtful to us, when there's mistreatment going on, maybe when we're being attacked or accused in some way, it's like, Lord, how long are you going to look on and not do anything, right? I mean, this would be like you're getting beat up in the schoolyard and your you know, older brother standing right there and you're thinking like, uh, when are you going to jump in here and beat the pulp out of this guy for me? And that's kind of like, I know that you could beat him up. So like, Lord, how long are you going to look on? Lord, When are you going to do something? Lord, I feel like that you're just standing there and kind of stagnant and not doing anything. And again, that, that perplexes us. We don't understand sometimes God's ways or his timetable, especially when hurtful things are happening in our lives. Lord, how long will you just look on? Lord, when are you going to act? He says, rescue me from their destructions. My precious life from the lions, picture of ferocious beasts that devour. I will give you thanks in the great assembly 
and I will praise you among many people. So David says, Lord, I, I'm confused. I don't understand why it's taking so long. I feel like you're just looking on without intervening. Please rescue me, Lord. But he says, in the meantime, I'm going to worship while I'm waiting. Do you see, you see what he says there, verse 18? I'm going to give you thanks in the great assembly, and I'll praise you among many people. Lord, I'm not going to begin to get bitter towards you and resentful just because I don't understand the timetable or because I don't quite see why you haven't acted the way I want you to act yet. Lord, I'm not going to let that foolishly make me question you and get bitter. He says, I'm just going to continue to worship you among the people of God and give you thanks for all of who you are and that you have done until I see how you address the situation. He says again, verse 19, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. Isn't that tough? They hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence, O Lord. Do not be far from me, Lord. I, if nothing else, I, I need to sense that your presence is with me, he says there. Don't, don't let me begin to feel like you're distant. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, O God and my Lord. Vindicate me, he prays again, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Oh, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. In other words, Lord, don't let them be able to boast in succeeding in doing what's wrong. Lord, he says, by your righteousness, put them in their place. Uh, you know, deal with them in such a way, Lord. He says, vindicate me according to your righteousness. Don't let the enemy rejoice saying, aha, see that we did this and nobody stopped us and no repercussions came. Basically what David's saying is, Lord, you say that what we reap, we sow. And Lord, they're sowing evil. So Lord, let them reap what they deserve. Let them reap the very things that they're doing. Don't let them get away with it, he's saying for your righteousness sake, but let them be ashamed, he says, verse 26, and brought to mutual confusion. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. And then verse 27, he turns back again to the right place of focus. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them continually say, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of a servant. And my tongue, he says, shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So he's saying, Lord, I want you to do this so that I can then have testimony and be able to say with my tongue and tell others that you are a righteous God and you came to my aid and you didn't let evil succeed and that you showed yourself strong on behalf of your children and I love what David declares there in verse 27 as the Holy Spirit's leading him to record these things. He says there, let them say continually, verse 27, let the Lord be magnified. Again, the idea is glorified, honored, who has, look what he says, pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. 
Again, what's prosperity speak of? Not just necessarily financial or material prosperity. To, to prosper just means to succeed, right? It means to be successful, to triumph. And I like that, notice he says, Lord, it actually gives you pleasure when your servant succeeds. It actually gives you pleasure and enjoyment when your servant prospers and triumphs and has victory in a pursuit or in an effort or in a situation. And again, I have that underlined because I find great encouragement in that because sometimes, you know, we wonder, you know, does God want me to prosper? Does God want me to succeed? Is God, is his intention just for me to fail and to not prosper? Well, absolutely not. The Bible says right here that God, like a good father, it says he has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. God wants us to be able to prosper in that thing that we're doing. If we're doing what's good and right in his sight, certainly if we're doing what's wrong, he doesn't want us to prosper in sin. He's never going to bless some sinful wrong endeavor. But if we're doing what's good and right in the sight of the Lord, he does want to put his favor and blessing upon us. And it actually pleases him to be able to see us prosper as his servant. Psalm 36, David then declares here, Another psalm of the David, the servant of the Lord, an oracle within my heart, he says, concerning the transgression. We said that word transgression before speaks of willful disobedience. It's not making a mistake. It's conscious rebellion. It's where you know something's wrong and you just consciously do it anyway in just an act of sheer rebellion. And he says, concerning the transgression or rebellion of the wicked. And then he begins to describe what characterizes the wicked. And he gives us some explanations. What characterizes the wicked? Well, first thing he says, verse one, there is no fear of God before his eyes. That is the way that he looks at things. There's no respect for God. The way he has his viewpoint on matters, God is not in the, in, in the consideration. There's no respect for God. There's no reverence for God's authority or what's right before God. There's, there's just no genuine fear that, hey, if I do this, what would God think about that? If I do that, if I have to answer to God for that, how would God you know, deal with me if I do that? And he says, this is a clear indication of the wicked is they have no fear of God. They just have no respect for God in their life. They're just brazen and rebellious in their selfishness. Verse two, he describes going on regarding the wicked, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. That is how he views himself. When he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. So as the wicked lives in his iniquity and lives in his hatred and animosity towards other people, not only does he think it's acceptable, but it says there, notice, he actually flatters himself in his own eyes. You know, it's one thing to flatter another person right where you speak well of another person typically for some you know reason you're speaking well of them but it's actually possible the bible says to actually flatter yourself that is to make yourself feel better about yourself than you really should and and to think exaggerated things about yourself and he says the wicked in their distorted perspective because they have no fear of god they actually flatter themselves about how wonderful they are, even in their iniquity and even in their nasty hatred, that they actually think there's something good about themselves 
being that nasty and that hateful and in the evil, wicked things that they're doing. Again, just completely confused, thinking that what they're doing is right. Again, the Bible speaks of those who call good evil and evil good. Uh, And and a very sad thing when someone actually can make themselves feel good about hateful intentions and hurtful activities and doing what's iniquity and wrong before God. He says, verse 3, regarding the wicked as well, the words of his mouth, so his speech, are wickedness and deceit, being deceptive and misguiding people for selfish intentions. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. So notice, interesting language, he has ceased to be wise. The idea is that God gives us a degree of just natural wisdom. But the problem with humanity is that we cease to be wise and we pursue the path of foolishness. You know, the, 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 it's the fool, the Bible says, that says in his heart, right, there is no God. And, and, and you know, considering ourselves to be wise, you know, we actually indicate, Romans 1 says, that we're fools and we suppress the truth of God. You know, we, we profess to be wise, but we become fools when we just cast God aside and we make ourselves God and we live according to our own rules and our own ideas and our own ways. And the Bible says of such a person, they cease to be wise and to do good. They've ceased to live in just general common sense wisdom and to do what's good, right? And you look around the world and do we not see people that that's such a fitting example? It's like you watch the way they're living and you're thinking, just you, you've just forsaken common sense wisdom. That makes no sense. I mean, I, I look at the stuff that, that we're, you know, our nation is trying to legislate right now and the directions we're trying to go with morals and the things that we're doing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've raised children in adulthood. When my kids were eight years old, they could have told you that's dumb. What are you doing? I mean, you're completely ceasing to use common sense wisdom i mean just completely i mean what when we you know are are giving opportunity now for those who are incarcerated to say well i don't feel any longer that i'm a biological male i think i identify now as a female so therefore now we're going to allow male criminals to be put into prisons with female inmates and female correctional officers Do you not think that there are not men who are already criminals in prison who are going to say, I think I feel like a woman. I've been awful lonely in prison. I think I'm a woman now. I want to go to the women's prison. And that women are now going to be raped and abused and female correction officers who signed up and were trained and are paid to control female inmates are now going to have their safety threatened because now they have to manage biological males in their aggression or if they rebel. I mean, the, the lunacy of the stuff that we do, but, but, but we do it in the name of, oh, you know, we're progressive. We're, we're thinking different now. We're, no, what you're doing is you're ceasing to be wise and just do common sense good things. I mean, it's just so tragic. But again, this is nothing but sheer wickedness and what happens when the heart is wicked what begins to happen i wonder if this is where this stuff stems from look at verse four perhaps this is why he devises wickedness on his bed the idea is laying there at night thinking up new wicked ideas (laughs) just just 
I can't sleep. Let me think of something else wicked I can do and introduce into society. He sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not abhor evil. Again, the idea is that just evil is not just something that's unacceptable. We, we should actually abhor evil. The Bible says you know, we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. We should abhor that which is evil because it's hurtful. Not just that it's displeasing to God. It's damaging and destructive to people, and it's another reason we should abhor that which is evil. Well, it's almost as if David's like, you know what, man, I just need to think about something better. <laughs> because look as he comes down to verse 5, talk about shifting gears. He says all that stuff, and it's almost like David maybe says, I just need a brain break. i got to think about God for a little bit. He says, verse 5, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. And the word mercy there is that, that word, the, you know, the, the loving kindnesses of God. It's that said in the Hebrew, the, the, the beautiful loving kindness of God. He says, Lord, it reaches to the heavens. The idea is how much mercy does God have? How much loving kindness is in God? Well, it reaches and extends all the way through the heavens. That is the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, the solar system, all the way through the eternal heavens. Thanks be to God, he has a lot of mercy, right? that he has a lot of loving kindness because we need it from time to time. And he says, your faithfulness, Lord, God's reliability, God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness to be who he is and to work on our behalf. Your faithfulness, he says, it reaches, it extends all the way to the clouds. So the reach of God's faithfulness is very far. It reaches however far it's needed. Your righteousness, the fact that God will do what's right, and continue to remain right no matter what man says. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. What are mountains? They're strong, stable, immovable objects. So what God declares is right and righteous, it's unchangeable. You know, I love what the Bible says, that God's word is eternal. It's settled in the heavens. So look, you can down on earth say, we're rewriting the Bible. We disagree with the Bible. We're tearing up the Bible. We're burning the Bible. It doesn't matter. God's word, because God's righteousness is like mighty mountains, God's word is settled in the heavens. You cannot alter the word of God because God doesn't change. People change, but God never changes. God, he says, your righteousness, it's like the mighty, immovable, great mountains, and your judgments, Lord, they're like the great deep. How deep is God's judgments and understanding? Well, it's like the greatest depths of the places of the oceans and the seas. And, O oh Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious, he says, is your loving kindness, O oh God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. The idea is the picture of, of protection under the shadow of God's wings to, to preserve and to protect his people. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures for with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. So David here speaks of how despite there's so much frustration maybe in the world and with wicked men and dissatisfaction that we find with those things on this earth, he speaks of where we can be satisfied, and notice the one place we can be satisfied is with the Lord and in the Lord and, and having experiences with the Lord. He says, they, your, your people, your children, your servants, they are abundantly satisfied 
with the fullness of, interesting, your house. In other words, where do we experience, to some degree, the Bible tells us, the fullness of God and his presence and his abundant resources? We experience it in his house because in his house is where his people gather together and God's presence is with his people. It's not the structure. It's the saints. It's the people of God. You know, and and I, I wonder to some degree if some people aren't more dissatisfied than they need to be. And some of it is because they're hanging out in the wrong places instead of in the house of God. You know, I don't know about you. I, mean, I know that ever since I've been a Christian, I, I can't really recall a time when I made a decision to go to the house of the Lord and I walked away afterwards going, that was a really bad decision. I mean, I'm so dissatisfied now. What did I do that for? I mean, I feel worse now than, it's never that, right? No matter what your flesh is saying when you're sitting in your lazy chair or you're in traffic, if, if you push beyond what your flesh is telling you to do and you go into the house of the Lord and you experience his presence and his spirit and are with his people, you, you find yourself satisfied and refreshed and fulfilled and, and you walk away saying, I'm really glad I did that. <laughs> Because there's something about the satisfaction that we experience when we come into the house of the Lord. And David here, he loved to be in the house of the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give drink from the river of your pleasures. Interesting. God can give us pleasures that are different than worldly pleasures. God's not against pleasure. God's just against sinful forms of pleasure. There are pleasures that are wholesome and natural and are God-given. And God says, I want you to drink of all my pleasures. There are pleasurable experiences that I have given as gifts. And God's not anti-pleasure. God just wants us to experience the pleasure that is from him in the way that he wants us to experience. He says, you give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. God can give us pleasure and satisfaction that far exceeds all the things people do in the world trying to find fulfillment and please themselves. For with you, he says, is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So where do we find light and direction? In the presence of the Lord, because the Bible says that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, right? And so as we're close to the Lord, as we're in the light of the Lord, that's where we get light and we get revelation from. He says, it's in your light that we see light. Again, we, we, we need to be close to the Lord. Again, I think of Jesus when I read this here. It makes me recall one of Jesus's I am statements. Remember Jesus, one of his I am statements, he said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me won't walk in darkness but have the light of life. Again, Jesus provides illumination to know how to live life properly. That is first and foremost in relationship with God through him as our Savior and as our Lord, letting him guide and direct our lives, and even just to show us the way to live life the way that God intends, not according to the patterns of this world. And so when we follow Jesus, it's in his light that we see light. Okay, now I see, Lord, as I follow you, I see I have light for what to do. And again, great encouragement to always remember, sometimes if you feel like you're in the dark, Right? You ever feel like that or say that I just kind of feel like I'm in the dark right now or I feel like I'm in the dark regarding a situation. Sometimes one of the simplest answers to that is don't overthink it and try and create your own little fires to kind of find your way. Just draw closer to Jesus. You just draw closer to the Lord because in his light is where you'll see light. 
As you're closer to him, things will become more clear and he'll begin to shed light on what you're supposed to do and where we're supposed to go. He says, verse 10, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Lord, you're, you're loving, you're kind. I just pray you'd continue that and your righteousness to the upright in heart. And Lord, let not the foot of pride, he says, come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Let's look at a little bit of Psalm 37 before we wrap up. We can do that. There's plenty of places we can break in the middle of it. He says in Psalm 37, do not fret because of evil doers. Now, what David's going to do in Psalm 37 is it's a psalm of contrast. He's going to say this is the the experience and this is the life of the evil doer, the one who's trying to hurt and selfishly harm people and grab and take everything for themselves and mistreat people in the process. And he says, and then this is the life of the righteous person who lives by faith and trusts God and waits upon God to act on their behalf rather than aggressively hurting and harming people to grab and take what they want in a selfish way. And he's going to draw this contrast now. And really, I'll tell you, Psalm 37, again, another favorite of mine. Psalm 37, you know, I've taught uh, messages on Psalm 37 before, and I remember one time I titled the message, you know, a, 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 a pill for stress relief or a prescription for stress relief, because especially these first few verses, that's really what God's addressing. It's almost as if God's saying, look, are you stressed out? Uh, are you agitated? Are you upset? Uh, you probably don't need to pop a pill, because after the pill wears off, you're going to feel the same way. But if you absorb the truths of this psalm, it's amazing how it causes the stress level to reduce in your life. And especially the first few statements here, verses 1 to verse 8 or so, there's a couple of key words that he really uh, you know, kind of presses in upon. And he says, look, if you do these things, your stress will be reduced and you'll begin to be able to cope with the frustrations and the difficulties that are coming upon you because of evildoers all around you. And that's many times the source of our stress. So he says, first of all, notice, do not fret. Sometimes that's the first few words that we all need to hear. Stop fretting. Do not fret, he says, because of evil doers, right? There are many different reasons to find ourselves stressed out frustrated, agitated, angry, right? The news just helps us do that all the more, even as Christians, if we watch it or read it or whatever, we watch what people are doing. Like I just was referring to a few minutes ago, maybe I was venting my own frustrations, you know, of evildoers. But look, he says, don't fret because of evildoers. You don't have to be passive about it, but he says, don't fret over it. Don't let it work you all up and make you stressed out and overwhelmed and just, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And, you know, overly anxious. God says, don't fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Don't find yourself angry. How is it that they get to do all that stuff and they still get all these blessings and everything goes good for them, right? And they seem like they have no problems. And here I'm trying to do what's right and I'm having challenges. And God says, no, don't let your mind go there. Don't become envious of people who are doing wrong things, workers of iniquity. Because, look, I tell you this, 
no matter what it looks like on the outside in the advertisement, God says, you have no idea what it's like in their personal life. And that's the mistake we make sometimes, right? We see all the glamour and this and looks like they're having this wonderful, great life. And the reality is God saying, you have no idea what's going on in their conscience, in their marriage, in their family life, the lack of peace and misery. The Bible says they're God's promise, one of his promises. There is no peace, saith the Lord for the wicked. But God says they're going to live in a way where they're like a troubled, agitated sea. The idea is that when somebody lives in a way that is wicked, God loves us so much as our creator that literally he says, I won't let a person be at peace while they're still doing what's wicked. Instead, I'm going to make it like a constant tornado inside of their soul every day to try and get them to realize you're doing the wrong thing. Because when people are agitated and disturbed, they just, right, whatever, I just want some peace. I just want peace. You know, I remember speaking to one of my family members not that long ago who's just, you know, just tend to be an individual where they're always at war with everybody. Whether it's their boss or another family member, it's, oh, it's never their fault. The thing they can never figure out is the one person that's at every situation that you complain about is you. But they haven't figured that out yet. And they're always, you know, angry at this person and upset with that person. And, and, I, and I finally said to him, I said, look, look, the problem here is this. You are always going to be battling with everybody else in your life until you solve the war within yourself. That's the problem. You're so conflicted within until you solve the battle and the war within. You're never going to stop being at war with everybody else in your life. And this is such an important thing to realize that God, you know, wants us to realize, don't envy them. Don't don't envy, he says, those who are workers of iniquity, because look what God says too: their life is so temporal. He says, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass. Right. And wither as the green herb. God says their life is so temporary, instantaneously, God says they're just going to wither up and, and, and fall apart. And then he counsels us what to do. Let's look at these first few verses of counsel that we begin to get in this great psalm. First thing he tells us to do instead of fretting and worrying, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. That word their trust means to lean on. That is to lean upon something because you believe it's stable, to, to depend upon, to rely upon, to put confidence in. And what's he saying? Put confidence in the Lord. Rely fully upon the Lord and just keep doing what's good. What do I do? Trust the Lord. Just rely upon the Lord, no matter what's going on, you keep relying on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and just keep doing what's good. Don't grow weary in well-doing, the Bible says. Just keep doing what's good, keep trusting the Lord, and notice, dwell in the land. What's dwell mean? It means to settle down and remain where you are. Dwell, settle in, and feed upon God's faithfulness. So again, that's important because typically when there's stress and fretting and anxiety and problems, typically what we want to do is what? Flee. 
I'm going to run. I'm going to get away. I'm going to flee from this marriage. I'm going to flee from this situation. I just, it's too stressful, too problematic. I'm so stressed out right now for whatever the reason of the stress. And we want to just run. And God says, no, trust, keep doing good and settle down and just dwell. God says, remain right where you are and just feed on God's faithfulness. Don't think if you just run away somewhere else that somehow it's going to fix everything, right? So on the, the grass is greener on the other side or the golden, on the other side of the rainbow is the golden pot. Or if I just move to this state, all my problems and stress will go away. And we think like that from time to time. And a lot of times we have to be really careful. Is that the Lord leading us or is that us, us just wanting to try and find a stress relief in a place other than just remaining where we're at, trusting the Lord, keep doing good, and just let God's faithfulness sustain you. God says, just dwell where you're at. Dwell in the land. He says, feed on his faithfulness and delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. That word delight means to find satisfaction. You know, to delight means to find enjoyment in. So the Bible's saying that we should find our enjoyment, our pleasure, our fulfillment in the Lord. Not in all kinds of other things, but he says, no, find, start finding satisfaction and enjoyment in the Lord himself. And notice the reciprocal blessing. When you do that, he shall then give you the desires of your heart. Now, I think that speaks of two things, not just that there's a, you know, kind of genie in the bottle thing here. Well, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, draw close to God. And if I do, then, then God's going to be my genie in the bottle and he, I can just claim whatever desires I want. And he has to give me whatever I want. Well, look, that completely contradicts the whole concept of what it's saying there. He's saying you fall in love with God. You just find enjoyment and all your pleasure and fulfillment in the Lord. And when you do that, he will begin to give you desires in your heart. But guess what those desires will be? His desires. Because when you're falling in love with someone, their desires become your desires because you love them and you want to please them, right? There are things that I do now that I never would have done if that blonde-haired woman didn't make me fall in love with her. Never. But that's the way it works, right? When you find pleasure and fulfillment in a relationship, the other person's desires become important to you because you care about their happiness. You want to please them. Well, the same happens spiritually. God begins to give you his desires, and he puts his desires, not your natural desires, he puts his desires into your heart. And then guess what happens when you're delighting yourself in the Lord and he puts his desires into your heart. Guess what he then wants to do? Fulfill those desires because they're in alignment with his plans and purposes. So he says, you just fall in love with the Lord, begin to enjoy the Lord and relationship with the Lord. He'll put his desires into your heart and then he'll give you those desires because now they align with his desires and will rather than per se your human desires and will. And God begins to bless by both giving you the desires he wants you to have and then giving you the desires that you now have within yourself that you're longing for him to fulfill because they're actually his to start with. Verse five, he then says, and commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Again, speaking of God answering on our behalf, whether it's vindicating us in, in, in proving that we are right in the situation when maybe someone is questioning us 
or, or whatever it may be, the, the primary command here, verse 5, is commit your way to the Lord. So trust the Lord, enjoy the Lord, he says, and just whatever way you're taking, just commit your way to the Lord. Again, because you have his desires now. So, okay, Lord, you know, I'm just going to commit my way to you, and I'm going to trust you. And what's the promise? He will bring it to pass. Lord, I'm going to go this way. I believe this is your way, but I don't know how it's going to come to pass, Lord. I don't know how. How in the world is that going to come to pass? He's going to bring it to pass. You just commit the whole way to him. Lord, this is your way. I believe it. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go in this way, and I'm committing the whole thing to you. And God says, all right, you do that, and I'll bring it to pass. I'll bring it to fulfillment and bring it to fruition. He does it by his power and through his provision in the ways that he does. And, you know, much better to have him bring things to pass than us trying to make something happen, right? That's the exact opposite. When we just kind of take our own way and we do, and instead we kind of, Lord, this is what I'm doing, bless it, and then we try and make it come to pass. God says, no, don't, don't do it that way. Just commit your way to me and let me bring it to pass rather than you trying to make something happen. Much better as the Bible, you know, kind of tells us indirectly that old statement, you just commit your best or, you know, you just do your best and then you commit the rest. You just commit it to the Lord and you let God bring things to pass. And then verse seven and eight, he says, and rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. That's the tough part, right? Wait patiently for him, that is to act. Again, he says, verse seven, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who's bringing wicked schemes to pass. Boy, that's tough. Verse eight, this is tough as well, is it not? Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. So God says, look, us being angry, you know, becoming wrathful and, and fretting in our anger over wicked people doing wicked things, God says, it's only going to harm you. It's only going to be self-destructive. I'm going to deal with them. God says, don't bring self-harm upon yourself because you're getting ulcers and, you know, just making yourself feel horrible physically and mentally, emotionally because you're fretting over this or you're so angry and, and just full of wrath over what someone is doing, God says, just notice he says, cease from that. The idea is that it, we're doing it, but he says, stop. The word cease means stop doing what you're doing. Just God says, put an end to it. Stop doing it. And what are we to do? Well, let me tell you what we're to do. He says, verse three, what? Trust. Verse four, delight. Verse five, commit. Verse six, Verse seven, verse rest, trust, delight, commit, rest, trust the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit things to the Lord, and then rest in the Lord. Why don't we stand? We'll close off for there this evening and we'll worship as our final word. How about that?